Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. We begin, as always, with our gratitude to our generous sponsors for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, and family memory of David Grossman, Le'iloi Nishmas, David Ben, Menachem, Manish. This morning, Shir Parshas Pinchas is sponsored by David and Sharon Carpella, memory of Sharon's beloved brother, Cantor Seymour Rakov, Elio Shalom Ben Achaim Shmuel, and by Esther Friedman, Le'iloi Nishmas, Yoel Baruch Ben, Yisrael Yitzchak, on Shloshim, Thank you so much for your generosity. There are always opportunities to sponsor individual shiurim, and we're always looking for sponsors of the Parsha Perspective write-up. This new uh, write-up that we are providing, it's being read by uh, thousands, Baruch Hashem, all over. If you'd like to sponsor it for an occasion, please let us know. We have the privilege this week of learning, of reading Parsha's Pinchas, page 876 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And the Parsha begins, even before we get to the Parsha, I've been sharing with you some uh, fascinating insights from this Otzer Plo Satora. It has some uh, fascinating, obscure, and yet again on this parsha, I won't take the time and go through it now. We have so much else we want to see. How do you spell Pinchas? With a Yud, with no Yud? Malay Chaser, how does it appear? The name Yisachar, how do you pronounce it? Yisachar, Yisachar, all kinds of uh, fascinating. How long did Pinchas live? We see that he is represented beyond Chumash into Tanakh. How long did he live? And much, much more. But I'll share with you one interesting uh, insight that he quotes. And he says the following. In the Sefer B'nai Yisachar, quotes, Why is it sometimes we combine parshios, sometimes we read them separately, sometimes we are in sync, with the reading in Eretz Yisrael, sometimes we are a week behind. How is it divided? Why is it organized in this fashion, in this way? Benir Ali says the Halik Benei Yisachar, the Mehadrinan Koma Dev Shalikros Aparshios Shemavur Bem Chalukos Haaretz Bimei Beina Mitzarim. Our parsha contains within it the complaint Lama Nigara again of Beno Slavcha. The daughters of Slavcha want to inherit the land of Israel. There's a love, a chavivus. They cherish, there's an affection, there's a yearning to be and to be part of and to own a piece of Eretz Yisrael. So we specifically design the calendar of Torah reading so that the reading of this Pasha falls during the three weeks. This time of exile, this time of destruction, this time of distance from our land or our land in its fullest sense, we read these parshios. So not only do we read Matos, Masai, Dvarim, which have explicit direct reference to the division of the land, but Pinchas also has the allusion to the division of the land because it invokes the complaint of the daughters of Tzlavchad and the response to them. Moreover, Parshas Pinchas has in it, says the Bnei Yisachar, the end of the Parsha, by the end, we don't mean the tail end, but the latter part of the Parsha deals with the Parshas HaMoadim. It goes through the Jewish calendar and the Jewish holidays. Why are we reading that in Bein HaMetzarim specifically? Says the Bnei Yisachar, because we need to know we have a promise, a Havtacha, the fast days that we are observing, these days of sadness and despair will be transformed to holidays, to days of closeness, to days of elevation, to days of joy. They're going to be transformed. Tisha B'Av itself 
Karalai Moed, Tishabov is going to be a great holiday. We omit Tachanun on Tishabov because it already has components of the great holiday. Hopefully we won't talk about it. We'll be in Yerushalayim. But if we observe Tishabov this year, we'll talk about what is the holiday component of Tishabov. Tishabov is all about despair, hopelessness, sitting on the floor, sadness, tragedy, loss, grief. Where is the holiday? Where is the rendezvous point, the moed in that? But nonetheless, says the Bnei Yisachar, that Parshas Pinchas, we read it in the three weeks. We've just begun the three weeks and we're studying and we'll read Parshas Pinchas. It should comfort us and give us strength to know that these days too will be transformed into holidays. What now we observe as fasting and sadness will become days of glad, of joy, will become days of holiday. And then he quotes the Tshuvas Eretz Tzvi. Who was the Eretz Tzvi? The Kashuk lover, Rav Aryeh Tzvi Frimer. The Kashuk lover, Kashuk lover was the Av Bezdan of Kashuk love. Then he became the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva's Chochmei Lublin. After of Meir Shapiro, he was murdered by the Nazis, Hashem Yikom Damo. And in his Eretz Tzvi, his Tshuvas, he writes, in the name of the Avnei Neza, the Sochachavr, Nachon Lulmod Hilchos Yontav Bimei Bein Amitzarim. There was apparently a custom among Hasidim to learn the laws of Yontif, complicated, difficult laws, to learn the laws of Yontif specifically during the three weeks. I would have said, learn the laws of Lashon Hara, learn the laws of honesty, learn the laws of Chesed and Staka, learn the laws of interpersonal relationships, of kindness, of generosity. We spoke the other night about being, uh, judging favorably. It's all kinds of laws to learn. Hilchas Yontif in the three weeks, absent a Yontif, so listen to the words, listen to the words of the uh, Eretz Tzvi. Mashakas of Maram, what the Sochet Shavu, the Avnei Nezer wrote, did not know that the Yontif Yom Malalu, Yesh Lavi Smachlaze, Mida Api Rov Chal Parshas Pinchas Bein Hametzarim. Where did this come from? Because Pinchas we read in the three weeks, Asher Sham Ksuvim Kol Karbonos Amoados, and all the laws, all the sacrifices for the many holidays appears Parshas Pinchas. That is an allusion, a hint to this custom, this tradition of learning specifically the laws of Yantif during the three weeks. I think maybe going back on the Bnei Yisachar. Why? Because we long for and we daven for when these days of sadness and despair will be transformed into days of joy and days of, of gladness. Days of gladness. Okay. Yeah, so much. It's tempting to share. Such exciting. I find it such fascinating stuff. But I want to get into our parsha itself. Page 876, Parashat Pasuk Yud. Pinchas. If you don't know who he is, he's the son of Elazar. If you don't know who he is, he's the son of Aaron. If you don't know about Aaron, no, he's a Kohen. He turned back my anger. My wrath, my rage against the Jewish people, when he avenged my vengeance among them. And because of Pinchas' righteousness, his virtue, because of his zealousness, I did not consume, I didn't destroy the Jewish people in my anger. And therefore, I am bestowing upon him the Nobel Peace Prize, the individual who stood up and drove a spear between two people who were united as one, this individual who brutally murdered, who brutally killed these two violators, transgressors, gets the Nobel Peace Prize of God. 
brisi shalom. Not only him, his descendants will be bestowed upon this status. Because everybody else passively were spectators. Everybody else was watching. He stood up and he stood for God. And it was an atonement. He atoned for the Jewish people when he, when he did so. Pinchas, why is it a small yud in his name? And Aleph is a yud ze'ira. The Gemara says that 10 miracles happened for Pinchas in that moment. 10 things happened for him to be able to do what he did. So the yud is a small yud, an illusion, says the Gemara, or others say based on the Gemara. There were 10 miracles that happened for Pinchas. We spoke about this in last year's Parshish year. Give you a little secret. You're allowed to listen to previous years also that week before the Parsha. We spoke about it last year. Why do we reference? Pinchas ben Elazar, lo kilises ben Yisrael I did not destroy the people, says God, in my anger. And it's safe for Kochve Or, Rav Yitzchik Blazer, the great Baal Musser, says, Pinchas stopped the plague. He stopped the plague. Why was he rewarded? What did Pinchas do that made him stop the plague? What stopped the plague? The Torah tells us not because he stopped the particular behavior, not because he interrupted or interfered with this egregious, egregious act. It's not that he interrupted Cosby and Zimri. It's not that he approached this lewd, licentious, promiscuous, immoral, unethical two people what they were doing in public. That's not why the Torah says he is rewarded with the bris shalom. Why is he rewarded? Three words. Bekano eskenasi. What do those three words mean? Bekano eskenasi. The opening pasuk. Bekano eskenasi. The art scroll translates, when he zealously avenged my vengeance. Okay, who's going to translate those words now? When he zealously avenged my vengeance. How do you avenge vengeance? What does that mean? Says Rav Yitzchik Blazer, the Koch Vayor, Shehera shebar bo kovod shamayim shenis chalel, zeh sheyachi chamas af shamis porach, keshem shem yakom ish nekloi charaf yigadei vivazes rav ha'ir, tivi adavar sharav yikas ma'od, im yakum echel mechashuv ha'ir v'yashim minay, payim lo'osu adam v'prat, im yistul astiris lechi, lav davka me'etzem nosei avikuach, kemo'etzem ha'chaiv al-kavar ha'torah. Says the Koch Vayor, Rav Yitzchik Blazer, you know why Hashem is grateful? You know why Hashem rewards him? Not because he stopped the particular act, but everybody else watched and had nothing to say. God's name was being desecrated. God's values and being principles were being stomped upon. Godliness and holiness. There was wide desecration and profanity. And everybody else were spectators. Everybody else stood by. Everybody else tolerated in this very tolerant, progressive culture of the desert. The Jewish people were afraid of being canceled, so they just stood by. Nobody objected, nobody protested, nobody said, boo! The Ribbonashom, the Almighty, sanctity, a life of nobility and meaning and purpose, God's vision and values for His world, they were being trampled upon. They were being dissected and dissolved. They were being absolutely desecrated. And what did the people do? They looked down, they looked the other way, Nobody wanted to say anything. Nobody wanted to be the victim, the focus of an attack from the people who wanted to defend the right to, what do you mean, this couple, Cosby and Zimri, they can't show their love in public, but it makes them happy. Who are they hurting? 
who are the injured party. They're happy, pursuit of their pleasure. Can't people just dress and behave and act and perform and identify and do whatever they want? So God says, Now, I want to be very, very clear. I am not suggesting that anybody here follow the footsteps of Pinchas, grab your spear, literally or figuratively, and go on the attack. That is not the Jewish way. Pinchas, the Gemara says, Chazal contemplated not speaking about Pinchas in a positive sense. He was a zealot. And we generally reject zealotry, zealousness, because if it's not judiciously and carefully applied, who says it's righteous and noble and has the consent of Hashem? So generally, we do not tell anyone, you have a right. None of us are deputized to stand up and scream and protest. Certainly, God forbid, ever, ever use violence in order to in protest. So I want to be very clear. I am not suggesting and no one should walk out of here and consider themselves a student of Pinchas. And now will take it into their own hands to act out against those who are desecrating God's name. But I do think it's instructive that the Torah is telling us there was a plague. There was a plague brought upon the masses. Why? What did they do? It was only Cosby and Zimri who acted. It was only Cosby and Zimri who desecrated. What did everyone else do? And the answer is, there is no innocent, passive bystander. When we are spectators to egregious misbehavior, to a violation and offense to Hashem's blueprint for His world, no one has the luxury of saying, you know, I'm neutral, I'm Switzerland, I was just in the middle, I didn't stand up, I didn't condone, I didn't condemn, I didn't want to get, I don't want to get involved. Rabbi, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. And that's what Ravitzka Blazer, the Koch gives this mushal. He says, imagine somebody stands up and they begin to scream and curse out and threaten the Rav Ha'ir, the Mardasa, the Rabbi, the Rosh Yeshiva. So everybody says, look, I don't want to get involved. If I get involved, somebody hung posters, somebody cursed out, somebody posted def- defamatory, unfair, untrue statements, somebody threatened. I don't want to get involved because then they're going to threaten me and then my family, they're going to hang a poster, they're going to talk about me. Eli Wiesel speaks about the people who don't get involved. He says that's the opposite of, the opposite of love. It's not hate, it's indifference. It's the, by, it's the bystanders. And we saw the consequence of a world who were bystanders to the worst atrocity in history. So Hashem says, you know why Pinchas is rewarded? It's not a matter of the particular act that he stopped. It's Bekanoes Kenasi. He stood up for me. He avenged my vengeance. He saw me the way I was being treated, the way I was being spoken about, says God. The way my rules, my blueprint for this world being set back. And he stood up and he protested and he objected. And sometimes you have to be intolerant of the intolerable. Intolerant of the intolerable. As much as we preach and we practice tolerance, and as important as that is, sometimes we have to be intolerant of the intolerable. Again, not in the way that Pinchas was, God forbid, but in a thoughtful, strategic, sensitive, appropriate way to defend the honor of Hashem. His honor also deserves defense. We also have to worry about Kiviachos, so to say, his feelings. We have to care about him too and have a sensitivity towards him. Some, we have a principle. The Gemara Shabbos Kufiyot test tells us, here we are in these three weeks, 
You know why Yerushalayim was destroyed? Because there was misbehavior left and right. And nobody said anything. Nobody said, that's not acceptable. We're not okay with that. That's not right. We have to stand up for what's right. In so many ways, between us and God, between us and others. The behavior of so-called Orthodox Jews recently at the Southern Wall, where a group of conservatives were celebrating a simcha, and to tear sidurim, and to spit, and to throw things. It's unacceptable, intolerable, horrific. They should be held accountable in the highest way. We have to speak up, we have to stand out. Bikanoas kinasi means to defend Hashem's honor is not about who's at the Kotel, what kind of service they're leading in that moment. It's about the misbehavior of these thugs and hooligans who have a higher responsibility because of the yarmulkes on their head and because of whom they associate with and the way they behaved. So it's true in every direction. There are people who are, who are misrepresenting Hashem in some directions, who are blurring lines and ruining definitions and misrepresenting Hashem's blueprint for how we're meant to function interpersonally in this world. And there are hooligans and thugs who are misrepresenting Hashem in another direction, who think what they're doing is zealotry of Pinchas, but it's not. And we can't afford to be silent bystanders and spectators. I don't know, I'm elaborating too long on this opening uh, comment. We have to move on. But you talk about a Pasha perspective for today. It's not the particular act that Pinchas stopped, it's the phenomenon. Will we watch from the sidelines or do we get in the game of defending Hashem's honor? When we see injustice and we see a lack of righteousness, Yerushalayim was destroyed because nobody wanted to get involved, because nobody wanted to speak out, because nobody wanted to confront the bully, because nobody wanted to say that's not acceptable behavior. That's not what we stand for. That's not what we believe. Those are not our policies, procedures. That's not what we believe. We need to learn. We desperately need to learn from it. How could it be the Shvatim opening Rashi? Rashi says, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKohen. Shahayu ha-shvotim so. The other tribes used to denigrate, they would insult Pinchas. How would they insult Pinchas? Harisem ben puti zeshapitem avi imo agolam la'avodus kochavim. You know who his Zayda is? You know who his Zayda is? His Zayda was an idolater. Ben puti zeshapitem avi imo, his mother's father, used to fatten the calves to serve idols. Do you know from whom he descends? So they used to make fun of him. They used to make fun of him. So therefore the Torah associates not only with Yisrael, his mother's father, says, oh, Of course, Pinchas acted inappropriately, incorrectly. He's violent. He has an anger problem. And where did he get that from? His Zayda, Yisro. Yisro, the idolater, Yisro, the pagan, that's from whom he descends, and that's why he misbehaved in that way. So the Torah says, well, not so quick. You know who his Zayda is on the other side? Aaron Akoin. His other Zayda is Aaron. And what's Aaron's defining characteristic? Oiv Shalom Varodev Shalom. Aaron is all about peace. He pursues peace. He loves peace. He practices peace. He reinforces and promotes peace. He also has that DNA of Aaron. So lest you think he acted out of violence and anger, he acted in the pursuit of peace. That is Hashem. That is the Torah's response. Now it's kind of peculiar. 
What, what led Rashi to this discussion? What led the Medrash to this conclusion? Normally the Torah identifies someone exclusively by their father. This is unusual that the Torah here identifies not only by the father, but also by the grandfather, the two Zaydis. So why by the two Zaydis? So this is what the Medrash Rashi comes to clarify. It's somewhat peculiar because the truth is, shouldn't we analyze and seek to understand Pinchas' behavior on its own merit? If what he did is wrong, then what do we care if Aaron is his grandfather? If we did his right, who cares that Yisro is his other grandfather? What does it matter from whom he descends? What does it matter who his grandfathers are? Shouldn't we analyze and understand his behavior on its own merit? Was his zealotry righteous or not? Was it right or correct or not? What does it make a difference who his grandfathers are, what spiritual DNA he carries? It's an interesting question. It's asked of David Salavechik. I'll leave it for you to think about. But I want to ask a different question. How could it be that the Shvatim are making fun of Pinchas? Think about the events. We sometimes, you know, we get so caught up in the, the Rashi, we don't zoom out the lens and think, does that make sense? We don't see the whole picture. Last Shabbos we spoke about an incredible Chassam Sofer who reminded us that we had eyewitnesses to every event in the Torah except Bilam and Balak. Jewish people had no idea they were in danger. They had no idea they were saved. They would never have had any idea that the episode ever happened had the Torah not recorded it. And we spoke about then why did it record it? A beautiful Chassam Sofer. So similarly here, zoom out the lens and ask an obvious question. When Pinchas acted the way he did, he received the Nobel Peace Prize. He got the God Peace Prize, much greater than the Nobel Peace Prize. Consider some of the recipients in the past the Nobel Peace Prize. It doesn't carry much weight at all. So he got the God Peace Prize, much, much greater. What did the people get? Did the people as a whole benefit from Pinchas's behavior, his actions? Yeah, there were 24,000 people who died. 24,000 Taharas, 24,000 funerals, 24,000 Espedim, 24,000 Shiva Minyanim, 24,000 Shiva homes, 24,000 widows and orphans. And what happened when Pinchas acted? It stopped. And what was the result? They started to make fun of him. <laughs> they challenged him. They doubted him. They denigrated him. How does that make any sense? How does that make any sense? Shouldn't they be grateful to him? Who would have any question about his lineage, about his history? Who cares about his ichus? They were suffering a horrific, terrible plague. Do we care? Okay, I'm dangerous to even say this, but do we care how the vaccine came to be? Do we look into the lineage or who was involved in bringing it in record speed? There's a vaccine. There was a plague, a pandemic. There was a vaccine. Who cares the lineage? Bottom line is if it worked, if effective or not. Who can doubt Pinchas' motive? Who cares where he comes from? Who endorsed Pinchas' behavior? None other. The Ribbon Shalom. Not Nobel. Kodesh Baruch who gave him the peace prize. So if Hashem says his behavior is righteous, his Bashem says his behavior was purely motivated, so much so that he earned the peace prize, the Torah peace prize, the God peace prize. Isn't that enough? Why do we need this Rashi? Why did they denigrate? Why do I need to invoke? Oh, no, no, no. His other Zaydas are own. You have to check out the Mechutin. The Mechutin 
That answers it all. Who doubted him? What do you see from here? No rose kochos hanefesh. Shaadam asuga lekabal tova kol gedola mimishu v'makom laakir tova yatzliach limso dvarim tadiim b'maseu ulevazoso alkach. What a powerful insight into the human psyche. We so badly don't want to be beholden to others. We so badly don't want to have to be grateful, to be makir tov, to have to carry what we call a debt of gratitude, that what do we do? The most cynical part of us kicks in and it makes us see the worst in someone, to challenge their motive, to undermine why they did it, to question who they are, their sincerity. What a horrific insight, but an authentic and true insight into the human psyche, that we have that capacity. This is what we spoke about at the end of Shavasar Batamas, about Dan Lekavschus. We all judge, we're naturally designed to judge. The Torah says our default, our instinct should be to judge favorably. Instead, so many judge unfavorably. That's the default. We find the negative. We find, instead of giving the other the benefit of the doubt the way we give ourselves, Instead of defending the way we defend ourselves, excusing the way we excuse ourselves, rationalizing the way we rationalize ourselves, right? This is the attribution error. When it comes to us, no, no, it's the circumstance, it's external factors, we're excused. When it comes to others, it's an internal failure, internal flaw. It's because they're always late, it's because they don't care, it's because they're not God-fearing, it's because they're not punctual, it's because they're not reliable, dependable, righteous. It's a terrible mistake, the fundamental attribution error that we make. And this is the three weeks we're supposed to overcome that. And you see that in our parsha. You see that in our parsha. Pinchas could save your life. And you still say, ah, he didn't really do it for me. He's violent. I was the beneficiary. He happened to be his violence. Stopped Cosby and Zimri. It stopped the plague. But he didn't do it for righteous reasons. I'm not putting him up on a pedestal. I'm not going to admire him. I'm not even going to thank him. You know why he did it? He's got an anger problem. He's got rage. He's got... So I'm not going to thank the Volunteer Security Committee. Ah, they sit in the sweltering heat and they defend and they protect our shul and our community. They do so without getting paid just to be generous and kind. What you literally hear when people say this. Nah, they like to have a badge. They like to carry a thing. They like to feel important. They like the power trip. They like to, ah, I don't have to thank them. They do it for themselves. They this is their excuse. They don't have to sit through shul. They don't have to go to davening. They feel good about themselves. They're standing at the gate. Are you out of your mind? Do you know how hot it is out there? Are you crazy? No matter how much you dislike davening, you'd rather be in the AC. <laughs> in Florida in July, than standing in the parking lot out in the gate, standing on the front line if God forbid something were to happen. But that's human nature. And you see that. You see that here in this story. By the way, they did it about Moshe Rabbeinu. They were slaves, they were dying, their children were being murdered, and they were liberating, liberated from essentially the concentration camp of Egypt. And what do they say about Moshe? Eh, he was on the take with the Mishka and he took a little money for himself. Ah, eh, you know, he's sleeping with people's wives. Ah, eh, you know, he doesn't get along with his wife. That's why he's never home. Are you crazy? This man has been Moser Nefesh. He gave everything. He gave everything. Mordechai saves the Jews of Shushan. He orchestrates the whole scheme that saves the people from extermination. And there's a re-election, there's a vote for his next contract as the chief rabbi of Shushan. And what does the Megillah say? He got a majority. A majority? I want to meet the person who didn't vote for Mordechai. Which resident of Shushan said, we could do better? He once walked by me at the Kiddush and he didn't say, good Shabbos, I vote no. 
Uh, they're out of their mind. But that's human nature. That's human nature. And that's the human nature we have to overcome. To not be cynical and sarcastic and to not look for flaws and faults and to not question motive and intent, but to just say thank you. Thank you. You sacrificed. You were Moser Nefesh. You acted when others were passive. You stood up and you risked everything, which Pinchas did. Turned out he made the right move, but he didn't know that till it was over. He didn't know that till God put the medal. He put it on properly in the front. But till God put on the medal, he didn't know that he did the right thing, that Hashem was approving with the peace prize. What could have happened instead? First of all, he could have been killed. What if he was trying to drive the spear, but they were quicker than he? God could have struck him down. He could have received the death penalty for what he did. He was Moser Nefesh. Just say thank you. Don't doubt him. Don't vote him down. Don't question his motive. Don't gossip about him. Don't judge unfavorably. Just say thank you. Just say thank you. What a powerful, powerful insight the beginning of our passion. Rav Nachman also has a comment. Rav Nachman says, why does he get the peace prize? This we've spoken about a lot in the past as well. Very peculiar. First of all, he gets the brisk kahuna. That's like, you know, the story about the person who comes to the rabbi and wants to buy the right to the Kohen Aliyah and to Duchen. It's the oldest Jewish joke in the world. It's the worst, like most of the oldest Jewish jokes in the world. And he says, I want to buy the right to the first Aliyah, to Duchen. The rabbi, it's a whole back and forth, but I'll spare you the terrible joke. But the rabbi, the punchline says, why do you want to be a Kohen? And he says, what do you mean? My father was a Kohen, my grandfather's a Kohen, my great-grandfather's a Kohen. So Pinchas needs to be awarded with being the Kohen. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron ha-Kohen. Wasn't he automatically a Kohen? I'd love to find that one. I'll go over to Kohen and Shul and say, you know, the Shul is so grateful to you. And we so appreciate everything that you do. We're not honoring you at the dinner. We're not giving him after Yonah. We're going to treat you like a Kohen. We're going to give you the award, the Kohen. I don't need your Kohen award. I was born a Kohen. Beginning the Kohen Aliyah since I'm born. What does it mean that Pinchas got the Kohen, the bris kahuna? He was already a Kohen, wasn't he? It's my second question for today. I'm not going to answer. I'll leave you to think about why that, why that really is. But what was he awarded with peace? The bris shalom, peace. That's a kind of peculiar, ironic reward. It's a funny award for someone who violently and viciously and graphically just drove a spear through two people. He put them on the spit to roast them together. That's pretty ironic, the bris shalom. Where does that come from? What's going on? So Rav Nachman says the following. Pinchas killed the, Shev- the Nasi of Shevet Shimon Zimri, Ben Salu, and this Midianite woman, Kazbi Bastur. We saw Kazbi, that's a rough name for these types of behavior. Because of their behavior, a pandemic and a plague spread among the Jewish people. And when Hashem gave, you get the bris of Shalom. So one does Ma'kesha Ben Advarim. This is not a direct teaching of Rav Nachman. It's a beautiful Sefer Shulchan Shabbos with Rav Nachman. It's extracting from Rav Nachman's teaching applied to the Pasha. So in order to answer this, you have to see Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman, Likutei Mu'aran, Chelek Alfsim and Pei. Shleimus HaShalom Ikasher Shnei Afachimus Achdim Yachad. Very interesting insight. Says Rav Nachman, you know what the definition of peace is? I love this insight. Shalom, peace, is not when everyone conforms. It's not when everyone is uniform. It's not when everyone's exactly the same. That's not peace. You may say peace is dress the same, act the same, vote the same, be the same, think the same. That's not peace. 
Peace is when you have opposites that are uniting. Opposites that are integrating. Opposites that feel unified. Fire and water. Loving kindness and strict justice. Fire and fire or water with water or kindness with kindness or justice with justice. That's not called shalom. What is shalom? Shalom is not when you have many of the same. Shalom is when you have a connection between that which is different. How does Rav Nachman know that? What is the root of the word shalom, peace? Shalem, whole. When everything's the same, it's not whole. When is something whole? When it's made up of different pieces. When are you finished with the puzzle? When is the puzzle whole? When all of the pieces fit and are put together. So peace, shalom, when you shalem, is not when you're uniform and not when you conform. And not when you're a carbon copy of the other. When do you really have shalom? When you have disparate, sometimes opposite parts that nevertheless piece together. They come together. And now, based on this insight of Rav Nachman, what real peace is, now we can understand why Pinchas was rewarded peace. Pinchas asamaisa shalkina. Pinchas did an act that was zealous. It was zealotry. It was violent. Shalalima svaharag. He showed strength, brutal force, and he killed. Why did he do it? To bring atonement to the Jewish people. The many, the masses were dying. He did something violent in order to end a mass violence of illness. Chazal had an insight. They said, whenever you have promiscuity in the world, whenever the boundaries are blurred and there's promiscuity in the world, there's destruction. We're living through that. We're living through a period of that, of moral decay. As much progress has been made, we are regressing morally in terms of these values and ideals. There's promiscuity and licentiousness, there's blurring of boundaries, there's blurring of modesty, there's blurring of public behavior, there's blurring of appropriate speech, there's blurring of protecting even the privacy and modesty of our emotions and feelings. The way it's splattered all over the world today. Every thought, every feeling, every emotion, every experience is shared with the whole world. And the more people see it and like it and repost it, oh, the more that we think we have. And what's the consequence? An enormous spike of mental illness. But more than that, there's moral decay. Pinchas was ready to give his life. He was ready to die to save the Jewish people. If you look superficially, externally, Pinchas' act looks like a act of jealousy, zealousness, anger, violence. Maybe it was the act, the will of the Sahara. So that's what the Torah testifies. No. This came from a pure place, and therefore the bris was shalom. He was uniting sometimes when, when Israel has to take act in order to eliminate danger and threat and terrorists. Is that the pursuit of peace or is it violent? It's a violent act towards the goal of peace, towards the goal of peace. Our rabbis very, very astutely noted 
Those who are kind to the cruel ultimately show cruelty to the kind. If you are kind to the cruel, if you're a pacifist and you show peace, turning the other cheek is not part of our tradition. We are peace lovers. That's all. There's nobody who wants peace more than the people of the state of Israel, the Israeli army. There's no more moral place than the state of Israel and the Israeli army. And yet, in order to defend themselves and achieve that peace, sometimes it takes acts that look like they're violent. If you turn the other cheek and you allow everything, then you are showing kindness to the cruel. You'll be cruel to those who are kind. And that's why, while it seems paradoxical or ironic or inappropriate, it's actually the most appropriate award for Pinchas, which is the bris of shalom, of peace, because that is his motive and that is his goal. I give him the peace prize. The stipler gone, writes in a letter, Kreine de Igrasa, second volume. Kreine de Igrasa are a collection of the letters of the stipler, Chaim's father, and in Chelek Beis, Shinyad Beis, he writes the following. You know, sometimes to bring peace, there has to be some conflict. Now, again, I don't want to speak lightly about this because the danger is that every person takes the matter into their own hands and decides they're the zealot in the name of God. So this has to be weighed very, very carefully. And this requires expertise and greatness and Gedola Yisrael and Das Torah. This is not to be taken lightly. But we're living in a time that believes, you know, let everything go and let everyone be happy and don't confront and don't ever push back and don't ever challenge and don't ever... But sometimes for the pursuit of a greater goal, like peace, it requires tension or discomfort. And that's what you see from this story. That's why he didn't shalom. In other words, shalom is not an absolute value. It's hard to sometimes understand how you achieve it. I'll give you a quick example. The Gemara says, sometimes, Mishana mipnei shalom. Emes is an absolute value. Emes is a supreme value. God's signature is Emes is truth. God's signature is truth. We have a tremendous fidelity and loyalty to truth. And yet, the Gemara already records, Mishana Mipnei Shalom, that when your wife says, how do I look in this outfit? At that moment, everyone looks beautiful, amazing, perfect. But if one had to consider what's more important in that moment, MS or Shalom? <laughs> the Gemara already says the answer is Shalom. The Gemara says it exactly. No matter what the kala looks like, when the, when the chasen says, isn't my kala radiant? Isn't she beautiful? You don't say, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an ish MS, I'm a kutzker. I'm sorry, but your, your kala is, is homely, somewhat grotesque, difficult to look at, uncoordinated. I'm an ish MS. I'm godly. I'm godlike. I'm telling you the truth. No, we say sometimes there's a greater value of truth than what seems to be that truth. A.J. Jacobs is a fantastic author, Jewish, not observant, 
We had him on behind the bima. I don't know, we're up to episode 95, so somewhere before that. And he wrote a few great books. He wrote a book, A Year Living Biblically. He actually just came out with a book. I don't get, a, I don't get uh, any kickback. He came out with a book about puzzles, solving puzzles recently. He's a great author, fun author. Anyway, so he wrote an article years ago called Radical Honesty. Right? His whole life is living a certain way and then writing about it. A year of living biblically and then writing about it. He told the story actually in our, in our uh, podcast, in that year of living biblically, when he got locked in a bathroom on an electric toilet with a sensor and he wouldn't get up because it was a year of living biblically and he spent the rest of that Saturday. It was a year of living biblically. <laughs> what was it like a year of living biblically? Fine. So uh, he wrote an article called Radical Honesty. What would life be like if you practiced radical honesty? With the examples I just gave. Someone says, what do you think of my, of my kala? And you're radically honest with everyone about everything you think. It's a great, you can Google A.J. Jacobs' radical honesty. The Torah does not endorse radical honesty. The Torah endorses relative honesty. Again, you have to be incredibly judicious and careful in how you apply that. Because everybody will always lie for that greater good. And then you'll become a pathological liar who forgets how to tell the truth. We know people like that. When you lie for no reason, you're not serving any other greater good. But in Judaism, these aren't absolute values to the exclusion of others. And similarly here, perhaps the way to achieve, says the stipler, the greater shalom is achieved not by being the pacifist in that moment, but actually by confronting. That is how you achieve the greater value, the greater good of shalom. The Megid Yosef, Yosef Sorotskin, has an insight here. And he says the following. Pinchas, l'chein emor n'nesun lo z'brisi shalom. Always interacts with us, measure for measure. But here, Pinchas does something violent, and Hashem rewards him with peace. To Mehani, how could it be? It's wondrous. He says, So, Reb Chaim, the brisker, says the following With a mouse. Everybody okay? A mouse in your house. So, what happens? The woman of the home, it could be the man of the home, but Reb Chaim Brisker said, the woman of the home and the cat in the house share a goal, which is to catch the mouse. Both want to catch the mouse and kill it. However, So if you just look externally, the, the, the wife of the house and the, and the cat of the house are perfectly aligned in their interest. They share the same goal catch the mouse and kill it. But they have very, very, very different motivations in why. The, the cat loves the presence of the mouse and wants to catch it and kill it because he wants it for breakfast. She wishes the mouse never came to begin with. She's chasing after it with pain and anguish and fear, what if another one comes, and despair and misery, more likely she's standing on top of the table or a chair, yelling for her husband to come. But it depends, different houses, different people have that responsibility. We don't want to generalize, even though generally it is true. So <laughs> she's chasing the mouse, wishing it never came and hoping desperately another come. And then the cat says, I hope that there's another mouse closely behind because I keep loving to catch them and eat them for dinner. So said Reb Chaim, Pinchas Hashem Pinchas is really a grandson of Aaron. 
Pinchas has the peace sign. He loves peace. Pinchas is pursuing peace. He talks about peace. He promotes peace. He doesn't want this problem to have ever come into his doorstep. He doesn't want this mouse of Kazbi and Zimri. He was thrust into the situation against his will. Pinchas is on top of the table screaming, Hashem, get rid of them. I don't want to have to take action against them. I wish they didn't come and I don't want anyone to follow. I'm peace, peace, man. I'm a grandson of Aaron. I don't want to do this. So while it looks like what he did was a violent act, it looks like he acted like the, like the mouse, he was acting like the Akeris Abayas. And what is the confirmation of that? What is Hashem's endorsement of what his motive was? That the real driver of him was the Aaron Akoin, that he did so so reluctantly, is that he received the bris shalom. Another way to understand it is based on the Orachayim. Iranidachas. Later in Sefer Dvarim, we'll learn about the Iranidachas, a idolatrous city. Torah says that when we properly dispose of the idolatrous city by leveling it, we receive a bracha of greater compassion. Why isn't again that ironic? And the Orachayim there says, sometimes when we do something demanded of us by Hashem, that asks us to invoke within us a behavior which can be cruel, we need to offset it with a greater commitment towards and a bracha of rachamim, compassion. As a parent, we want to shower our children with love. and We want it to be all kumbaya and fun and games and love and affection. Sometimes for the child's own good, we need to take a strong stance. We need to do something which is punitive. We need to take something away. We need to act with a certain level of, of intensity. And we are invoking from within ourselves something that we don't want to be cultivating or growing. So in that moment, we have to do something. Sit down and learn a muscle safer. Go practice loving kindness in another way. Don't get used to midas achzarius. Don't get used to practicing that, that cruelty. A surgeon professionally cuts people open. They've become accustomed and comfortable with putting a knife and cutting someone open. They're doing it for a greater good. They're doing it in a noble reason. There's nothing wrong at all with what they're doing. But imagine you've now become a person who's comfortable with cutting open a human being, with driving a knife into another person. So you need to do something to cultivate the rachamim, to create that balance. So what's true for the irnidachas suggests, based on this orachayim of the irnidachas, suggests the Megid Yosef may also be true here. Because the moment demanded Pinchas to behave in that way, Kodesh Baruch who doesn't want him to become a cruel person, he balances it out with an influx, an injection of shalom, of peace. Perach hafei pasuk yedalet. V'shem yishitzro mukashu ukas midyani zimri ben salu, nesiv beis av l'shim oni. Rashi tells us, b'makam sheyichis is at tzadik l'shevach, yachis arash l'gnai, we gave the name of Pinchas, his full lineage, his whole resume, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron. So since we did that for the Russia, we have to do it for, we did it for the Tzaddik, sorry. We also do it and identify fully the Russia. So who is the Russia? Zimri ben Salu, Nesi Beisav, L'Shimoni. Why? Why do we have to know the family of the Russia? So Rashi tells us, if we're going to go all the way back and invoke the descendants of the tzaddik for the good, that he's the grandson of Aaron, then we have to invoke the descendants, the antecedents of the Russia for the bad. But why? 
Vichesko Levenstein, the Mashkiach Aponovich says, Torah is teaching us, Shlo nevad shum prat katan mi maisa hara. Afilu kishaosa maisa gadol yesh bochi of misa gnai gadol. Adain tovim mimenu gamas kavod mishpachto. You need to know that when you do something bad, big or small, in addition to whatever consequence you will suffer, there's also the impact that we brought on our family name. We have a responsibility to our family name. We have a responsibility to the people who come before us. And there's a consequence. Whatever consequence we suffer, here, Zimri suffered the greatest consequence. He was killed. Capital consequence. He was killed. So on top of that, we say, Zimri, listen, you're going to get killed for your actions. They were so egregious. And also, by the way, you're responsible. We're going to mention your family name because you've brought them shame. Does he care? Once he's given the electric chair, he's got a spear going through him. Does he really care? And the answer is yes. Yechezka Levenstein says, you see from here, from this Rashi, the tremendous responsibility we have in our behavior for those who come before us and for the name that we carry. Moving right along. There's a new census which is taken of the Jewish people after this plague, a new census. Where are we at? How many are they? And B'nai Shimon l'mishpachason, the Nemuel, mishpachas n'mulei, the men mishpachas yamini, yachim mishpachas yachini, the zerach zarchi, sorry, go back a pasuk, para pasuk yud. V'atiftach ha'aretz aspia, in the middle of giving the census, in case you forgot from just a few parshios ago, we remind you of the story. The ground opened up and swallowed Korach. Ba'chol ha'eshes chamishim ma'asayim yish v'ilaneis, but uvnei Korach lo mesu. Korach's children, they survived. Korach's own children didn't die. Korach's own children didn't die. And we know that. When do we remember them? Tehillim. Every Monday, the Shir Shayom. We try to inspire ourselves by quoting, by referencing the text, the liturgy that was composed and authored by these B'nai Korach, by the children of Korach. Korach is one of the greatest villains in the Torah. And yet his children are authors of our tefillos. Rashi says, They weren't just passive bystanders to innocent children of the villain of history. They were part of the catalyst. They prodded their father. Daddy, Tati, Abba, I don't know what they called Korach, but whatever they called him, you know, why Moshe, it should be you. Why aren't you sitting on the bima? Why aren't you on the Mizrach? Why don't you get to give the drasha? Why do you still have all your hair and have... No, sorry, they never said that. Why do you still have calm in your health and you don't have all the agony and distress? No, they didn't say that. But why don't you have the fame and fortune? Why don't you have the spotlight? They were the ones who pushed Korach in this rebellion. So how were they spared? How were they saved? Because in the moment of the rebellion, they had second thoughts. And what did they do? Did they stand up and declare tshuva? Did they radically transform their lives? No. Says Rashi, what did they do? Hear haru b'tshuva. All they did is decide, uh, you know, that wasn't right. Hiru, they contemplated, they dreamt, they had an ambition and aspiration for tshuva. Belibam, in their hearts. It wasn't even manifest. You couldn't even measure it. You didn't see it it's externally. There was a high place in Gehenim that they sat and ultimately that they climbed out of. And they climbed out of it so successfully that ultimately we quote them and we invoke them. And b'nei korach, b'nei korach lo mesu. It's an amazing thing. The children of other tribes died. And Dasan Va'aviram went down. But B'nai Korach held on. Why? Because Hiru B'tshuva. And the author of Slobodka says that sometimes in our lives we're confronted with a moment of truth. 
And in that moment of truth, are we going to identify with the, with the uh, breakaway, with the insurrection, with the rebels? Are we going to stand up for what's right, what's true? Are we going to? And in that moment, hear her ubitshuva. It doesn't even take the action what precedes the action, the prerequisite to the action, the hiruru b'tshuva, just contemplating, just thinking, just considering, just becoming determined to do tshuva in its own right, can get us survival like it did, like it did B'nai Korach. Perach of Zion, Pasakei. Try to get in a few more. Perach of Zion. Now we have the grievance of Tzlavchad. Now we're talking lineage, we're going all the way back. Some of these names we use, it's interesting that we don't find people naming after all of Benoslavchad. We know some Noahs, I don't know any Chagla. We know Milkas, I don't know any Tirza. But anyway, these are the daughters of, five daughters of Slavchad. And they stand up to Moshe and they say, it's not fair to us. Avinu Mezba Midbar, our father, Abba, Tati, I don't know what they called him, died in the desert. And why did he go down? He wasn't part of Korach. He died because of his Cheto. We have a tradition. What was his Chet? Who was Tlavchad? Torah doesn't tell us, but we read the story of the Mekoshesh Eitzim, the one who gathered the wood who violated Shabbos and was put to death for violating Shabbos. So the tradition, the Gemara says, Chazal say, that was Tlavchad. He was the Mekoshesh Eitzim. He gathered the wood. He didn't go down with Korach. He died for his own reasons. So why are we being deprived? What words do they use? Lama Yigara. Lama Yigara. Should sound familiar. Who else said those words? Where did we see them? Parshat Baloscha. Pesach Sheni. Those who were impure came to Moshe and said, Lama Nigara. And Pesach Sheni is the holiday of Lama Nigara. And here Ben Aslavchad say Lama Yigara. Same language. What does it mean? Why should I lose out? Why should I lose out? Wow. Judaism could either be, why do I have to? Or Judaism could be, when we can't, why do I lose out? What are we projecting? How do we live? What do our children see? What type of a Yiddishkeit and Yadus? It is, a, is it a, why do I have to? Or when I can't, why do I lose out? During Corona, was it, this is fantastic. I don't have to go to shul. I can wake up whenever I want, daven whatever I want, go whatever speed I want. This is fantastic. I wish it would go on forever. Or Lama Yigara. I miss shul, I miss laning, I miss tefillah b'tzibur. Which do we, which attitude do we show? So Pesach Sheni and Ben is the same Lama Yigara. And they, accru- they approach Moshe. Moshe es mishpatan l'fnei Hashem. Moshe doesn't know the halacha, and he brings the question to Hashem. Rashi says, Nis'alma mimenu halacha. He forgot. Rav Kuperman Zatzal, the founder of Michlala in Yerushalayim, has a whole sefer in the times that Nis'alma mimenu halacha, the times that Moshe forgot the halacha, an analysis of each of those times. Why here does he forget the halacha? So the Chavetz Chaim. Chavetz Chaim says the following. They went out of their way, the Benoslavcha, to say that their father did not participate or go down with the rebellion of Korach. So Moshe saw himself as now being bribed. He couldn't pask in this for himself. Why? Because if he didn't participate with Korach, he would want to rule favorably. He would be predisposed to rule favorably, knowing that they, the father, Tzlavcha, was not part of Korach. 
Therefore, he brought this before Hashem. Therefore, he brought this before Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu did not, he understood that he was puzzled to decide it for himself. He was biased because he would show favor to somebody who was not part of Korach, and that's why he brought it, and that's why he brought it to Hashem. I saw the Kutzker as a different interpretation. The Heliga Kutzker says, Yesh la'akshos, ha'secha m'chayv she'me'ein ben, abas yerashos. So, the Gemara in Shabbos tells us, Gimel dvarim asa Moshe midaito. Moshe wasn't afraid to take the courage boldly. Sometimes when he didn't know the din, Moshe just used his logic. He decided it on his own. Three times he did it and God endorsed it. So why wasn't this a fourth time? Is it a tremendous leap to know that if there's no son, the daughter inherits? Why did Moshe have to bring it to Hashem? Venir Yashev. So says the Kutzker. It's a wild Kutzker. In order to inherit a portion in Eretz Yisrael, you have to be committed to Shabbos. Shabbos demands the worthiness to have Israel. Eretz Yisrael is the observance of Shabbos. Who was the Makoshesh? Slavchad. He was Mechala Shabbos. So Moshe said to himself, maybe Davka, they don't deserve a portion in Israel because their father was the first to break Shabbos. That's the whole of the story, and we definitely don't have time, but it happens to be, oy, we don't have time, but it happens to be that Slavchad was an Avera Lashma. He violated Shabbos intentionally. Why? So that the world, the Jewish people would see he would be put to death, and they would understand that when Moshe told them, we have this thing called Shabbos, don't mess with it, don't play with it. It's a capital crime with a capital punishment called Skila. And people would say, ah, you don't mean that. Ah, it's not true. Ah, you'd never do that. Ah, you're just trying to make it sound like it's important, but... So Tzlovchad said, I'm going to demonstrate what happens so that the rest of our time in the Midbar and going into Eretz Yisrael, nobody will ever violate Shabbos. He did what's called an Aveir Lishma. What is, what is the halacha about Aveir Lishma? Are you allowed to do that? It's a whole discussion. Yael did an Aveir Lishma. Esther did an Avera Lishma. We sometimes see that someone does something, takes it in their hands. The second volume of Rav Shechter and the Parsha has a whole essay in this week's Parsha about this question from this case. But says the Kotzker, Moshe Rabbeinu looks and he says to himself that in order to earn living in Eretz Yisrael, you have to value and cherish Shabbos. Their father, Tzlovchad, is Makosh Yitzim. He's the one who gathered wood. What malacha did he violate? Amir, what's the malacha? Also a discussion. What malach exactly did he violate? Did he gather the wood to burn it? Is it Mavir? Amir? What was the malacha? But he violated Shabbos and he was put to death and maybe therefore his daughters don't deserve a portion. And that's why, though it would have seemed logical and obvious to jump and to know, he didn't. He hesitated and he waited and only turned to, to Hashem. We have time for one more. Which one should we do? Ay, ay, ay. Right after Ben Oslavchad, Moshe then thinks of his own succession. He knows it won't be his own sons. He asks Hashem for insight, who to get. And Hashem points him to Yoshua ben Nun. And he does smicha on Yoshua ben Nun. What quality does he need? Yifkod Hashem Perech of Zion, Pasuk Zion. 27.7. Yifkod Hashem Lokei Aruchas Lecho Basar. Sorry. Tezayin. 
Moshe realizes he's not going to live forever. What reminds him of that? Slavchad. Slavchad dies, the daughters are talking about inheriting. Moshe says, oh boy, I don't have immortality, nobody does. What will my succession look like? This is a top five leader. Jim Collins, good to great, he'd say the top five leader cares about succession. It's not about their name, it's about the brand, it's about the, it's about the, the mission. So Moshe Rabbeinu is, I once gave a drush about this, the qualities of the top five leader, and Jim Collins, good to great, Moshe Rabbeinu checks them all off. Here he's a top five leader. He wants, he cares about succession. Yifkar Hashem And what is he looking for? Appoint a person who will go out before them and come in before them, who will take them out and bring them in, who will treat them not like sheep that have no shepherd. Interesting. Interesting description. So Revolba says about this, Revolba writes, he says, what do you see from here? Moshe's concern not find them the smartest, find them the best orator, find them the frumest, find them the one with the longest Shemot Esrei, find them the one with the most Chumras. None of those are on the list that Moshe asks Hashem for his successor. What matters to him, his successor? Someone who will be their shepherd, who goes out with them and comes in with them, who sits with them, who cares about them. That's the most important. That's the most important. Rav Kelmer from Wasemstead, Zechatzalik Levracha, who was an icon of this, who was brilliant, brilliant, and answered Shuvas, who was absolutely brilliant. But his compassion, his showing up, the lengths that he went to be there for people, to go in with them, to come out with them, to sit there with them. Revolba says, you see, the most important criteria of the leader is not their head, but their heart. Of course, you have to have a good head. The leader can't be a fool or ignorant, but that's not the criteria, the qualifications, which Moshe asks for, for his succession. What he looks for is somebody who will go out and who will come in, somebody who has that. Rashi says, what is this? Who is the basar ish Rashi says, somebody, What is the qualification, says Rashi? You need to find a manig, a leader who will be sovel. What does the word sovel mean? Suffer. Under the sufferance of Egypt, we are tortured. Take us out from the sivlos mitzrayim to be sovel. But what's the root of the word sovel? Savlanut, patience. Patience is sufferance. Patience is the ability to sit with suffering. So there's a miserable, incorrigible who judge unfairly and don't give the benefit of the doubt and complain, I still love them. I suffer through them. That's parenting I just summarized, by the way, but also the rabbinate and also leadership. But I still love them. So I suffer through them. I'm sovel. I'm willing to be sovel because the love I have for each one, echad la'echad l'fidaito, the altar of Kelm spoke about and wrote about from here, you see the most important quality of a leader is patience. Patience. The capacity for so-called sufferance the ability to live with patience is the most important quality. Right, there were so many other things I wanted to share, so many other beautiful ideas. We leave them for next time. If you want to get the write-up of Parsha Perspectives, you could sign up to get the newsletter each week, the new article, the write-up, and so much more. By the way, it's easy. Take out your phone right now and text the following number, 22828. Put the letters REG. Hey, Leora, I'm watching you. REG. You get the newsletter already? I signed you up. REG to the number 22828, 
And that will sign you up for the newsletter with everything you want. Feel free to sponsor the Partial Perspectives right up. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.